Did you know? Halloween edition. That in 897, Pope Formosus was put on trial for perjury and crimes against the papacy. The problem with this trial was that the Pope had been dead for a year. Under the orders of his successor, Boniface VI, Formosus was dug up, placed on a throne, and tried. Obviously, the corpse had nothing to say on his own behalf and was found guilty. He was then declared an unfit pope. They cut off the three fingers on his right hands that were used to bless things, then ripped his pope robes off of his decaying body and threw him in the Tiber, though his body was later fished out by a monk. Welcome to the Lore of the South. Welcome back to Lore of the South with me, Kelly Cruz. How the heck are y'all doing? How many of y'all had to face down Ian? Did everybody make it through okay? We were on the good side of the storm up here in North Florida. It just brought us some cool breezes and cloudy skies. We didn't even get a drop of rain. That made it feel like fall for a few days, actually. But y'all, we've had those that were in the path and our thoughts and hope everybody's doing okay that destruction down south is awful so all that were affected y'all hang in there it's october y'all the spookiest time of the year and my favorite time of the year so this month we're bringing the spooky to you scary places and why they are scary and in honor of the month of October, we're going to forego our history-making news segment and talk instead about the history of the haunted house. If you've been listening for a while or listened to any of our past episodes, y'all know me and producer Mike loved us some Halloween Horror Nights, even though we, we did skip this year. So the topic of haunted attractions is right up my alley. Madame Tussaud is credited with the first spooky amusement. During the French Revolution, she was front and center at the royal executions. She was tasked with making the death masks of the aristocracy that had been newly beheaded. She then took their death masks and made wax sculptures from them, and she opened her chamber of horrors in 1802 in London. It drew many visitors and frightened nearly every one of them. In the Chamber of Horrors were very accurate wax sculptures depicting the royal guillotining of the likes of Marie Antoinette and her husband, King Louis XVI. The first haunted house, I'm sure this made many a lady faint. Then we have the first haunted house attraction, which was built in 1915 at the fairgrounds in Liphook, England. It was powered by steam and it is what we would today call like a carnival funhouse. It still exists today and is located at the Holycomb Steam Collection. And if we move a little forward in time to 1919 across the Atlantic to the U.S., Edna Kelly wrote the first book about Halloween, its history and how to throw the perfect Halloween party. She is sometimes credited with saving Halloween. The night of Halloween was a night of pranks, many of which got out of hand. And one night, all in one town, a group of boys and young men overturned outhouses, sawed telephone and telegraph poles in half, and destroyed a lot of property. It was then during the Depression, as a way to keep the troublemakers occupied, 
that parents started the tradition of setting up haunted houses in their homes. They would give packs of kids a map to follow on a haunted trail. The kids would go from house to house and explore the haunted homes and receive treats. Problem solved, no more overturned outhouses. Then, in 1969, Walt Disney changed the game when it came to haunted house attractions when the Haunted Mansion was opened in Disneyland. With its holographic dancing ghosts and its mind-bending optical illusions, it really did feel like the ghosts had come out to play. And then from there, we get all the do-it-yourself haunted houses that doubled as fundraisers by local clubs like, you know, the JCs. Y'all remember those? We never missed a year going as teens. And then the big theme parks caught on to the idea in the 90s, and that brings us today where every theme park across the country has some sort of Halloween theme event. You probably have either a regional haunted house or a hayride near you, so y'all that aren't of the faint of heart, get out there and enjoy this 220-year-old tradition. Now for episode number 52, Welcome to the Crossroads. Crossroads have been places to fear for centuries. They've taken center stages in many a plot, from everything from modern novels like Charlene Harris's series Midnight Texas. There were a place to hang wrongdoers, a place to bury someone who went against the church. Crossroads are places where legends like Stingy Jack lurk, holding his jack-o'-lantern above to lure people from their paths. They're where musicians go to make deals with the devil. But why are they stuff of such spooky legends? When did this start? Crossroads are the places where choices are made, so let's dig into it. The wariness around Crossroads dates back to the ancient Greeks. Probably even further, because you know everyone be sharing cultures. The Greeks believed the Crossroads were guarded by Hermes and Hecate. Hermes was the messenger of the gods and the protector of travelers. Hecate is sometimes called the founder of witchcraft, but more often she too was at the crossroads to help the travelers along. She would be seen holding torches to light one's way, keys to open any doorways, and oftentimes accompanied by a dog. Offerings would be left for Hecate at the new moon so that she could continue to be helpful to travelers. Romans would perform purification rituals at crossroads. Seeing these places as somewhere that could possibly change a person spiritually for good or bad, if the wrong path was chosen. The Norse and Germanic tribes worshiped their gods at crossroads. You can still find some of the old standing stones with runic symbols carved into them to both guide and protect travelers. In these times, traveling was a dangerous thing. Heck, you know, day-to-day life was dangerous, so the ancients did all they could to help protect themselves along the way. As we move from Norse and Saxon times into the Middle Ages, crossroads were still seen as gateways, where the veil between the living and the dead were most thin, like pagans still believe about Samhain. Throughout the British Isles, the crossroads were used as places of warnings. 
They would hang criminals from the trees at the crossroads. They'd place them in gibbets, all as warnings to passerby that lawlessness would not be tolerated. Both criminals and the victims of suicide were buried alongside the crossroads as well. For these folks, could not be interred in consecrated grounds. In fact, this was a practice that lawfully took place for a thousand years. Burying the damned, their thoughts not mine, so y'all don't come at me. At a crossroad, wasn't made illegal until 1823. In 1587, Faust, being one of the oldest and most well-known stories about a man using a crossroads as a summoning point, Faust or Faustus was an astrologer, a necromancer, one who could summon the spirits of the dead to tell the mancer the future. He was also a known alchemist and a magician. It's said that he went to a crossroads at midnight to summon the devil. He then made a deal with the devil to make Faust all-powerful in exchange for Faust's immortal soul. African culture saw the crossroads as a place where the sun set and rises and were easily viewed and marked new beginnings and ends. They also saw crossroads as a thin place as well and thought of the crossroads as a place to summon spirits or maybe even the devil himself. These thoughts were brought over with the enslaved to the new world and with the practice of hoodoo. It's probably a major contributor to the legend of Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson came from the Mississippi Delta country, the birthplace of the blues, and he's considered one of its fathers. Born May 8, 1911 to Julia Major Dodds and Noah Johnson, while Julia was actually married to Charles Dodds. The man Robert assumed was his father was a well-to-do black man a farmer and a furniture maker, but like what happened way too many times in our history, a bunch of white guys got jealous of a black man's success and he was run out of town with a lynch mob on his heels. A couple of years later, Julia shows up in a Memphis census along with young Robert, where they were reunited with his father who had changed his name to Charles Spencer. Robert and his mother would remain in Memphis for the next eight or nine years where Robert attended school for colored children, and it is here that young Robert was most likely first introduced to the Southern or Delta Blues. Julia left Memphis, and she and Robert, now Robert Spencer, show up in the census in about 1920, and Julia had married again, this time to an illiterate sharecropper named Will Dusty Willis. The locals around Robinsonville took to calling young Robert, Robert Dusty. He was also beginning to gain a reputation for his skills with the harmonica, and he was back in school until about 1927. And from some of the writings of his, it's thought that he was pretty well educated for the time. It was also noted that Robert would disappear for long periods of time. It's thought that he may have been traveling back and forth to Memphis to better his skills as a musician. It was around this time in 1929 that Robert's mother told him the truth about his father, and from then on, he went by Robert Johnson. At the age of 18, he married his 16-year-old Virginia Travis. 
she traveled home by train to give birth to the couple's baby. Robert had promised to soon join her there, and he'd put down his music and pick up a shovel and do honest work. Virginia died in childbirth before Robert could reach her side. Her parents blamed Robert for her death, claiming it was a punishment from God for Robert playing the devil's music. From there, it was a bit of a mystery where Robert went. There were rumors that he would spend time in graveyards practicing his guitar, maybe in the hopes that the spirits of the dead would aid in his ambition. Or maybe it was just a quiet place to practice. Another story, this one involving the crossroads, a hoodoo practitioner on one of the plantations that Robert would use as a stopover during his travels, told him to head down to the crossroads at midnight, make sure to take a guitar with him, and wait. Well, according to legend, Robert did just that, and a tall, dashing black man stepped from the shadows of a large oak. He took the guitar from Robert, tuned it, played three songs, thusly ensuring that the guitar and Robert would be imbued with supernatural powers. When he did show back up to his hometown, everyone was amazed at how improved Robert was, that it seemed magical how well he could play after only a few short months. While having an extended stopover in Martinsville, he fathered a child in May of 1931. Later that same year, he married Coletta. The couple settled briefly in the Delta community of Clarksdale, Mississippi, before Robert hit the road again. Coletta was dead by 1933, and Robert was seen on the street corners and juke joints all across North America, from Canada to Texas. It was in Texas that Robert got his first and only record deal. The albums were recorded between November of 1936 to June of 1937, and they contained the whole of his song list. 29 songs, famously among them Sweet Home Chicago and maybe the telling song Crossroad Blues. Yeah, I'll post a link to the songs and the lyrics in the show notes. But to me, in the song, it sounds like Robert feels abandoned and is asking for forgiveness for his damned soul. Johnson died only a year later after his albums were published on August 16, 1938, at the age of 27. He died under rather mysterious circumstances. There was no autopsy performed and no cause of death listed on the death certificate. There were rumors from everything from poisoning by a jealous husband to syphilis. I mean, Robert, he was one heck of a ladies' man. Or perhaps he even had congenital syphilis, meaning he was born with it, all the way to a genetic disease called Marfan syndrome. So let's talk about each of these potential causes of death, and let's start with congenital syphilis. Normally, between 14 weeks and 5 years of age, there are signs of the disease, like skin peeling, developmental delays, teeth abnormalities, things like that. From the photos I've seen, I don't think this one fits. Also, other than being eccentric, he was known for being very intelligent. Next is Marfan syndrome. 
Well, this one could fit. He physically meets the description. He's tall, lean, extremely long fingers, and sometimes the eyes are affected. And Robert did have a bad eye. Many people, especially nearly 100 years ago, would die young from the disorder. Aortic dissection was to blame most often. Though physically, he looked like he might have had Marfan's, I don't think that's what killed him. Earlier on, Robert had been diagnosed with esophageal and stomach ulcers, probably brought on from heavy drinking. Just before taking ill, Johnson had been flirting with a married woman at a dance hall that he had been performing at. Her husband caught wind of this and had his wife offer Robert an open bottle of booze. Robert's friend and fellow musician, Sonny Boy Williamson, tried to warn him against drinking from a bottle that Robert didn't open himself. Sonny had gone as far as to slap the bottle out of his hand. You know, this only made Robert mad, and his reply to Sonny was, Don't ever knock a bottle from my hand. Johnson then held out his hand for another, and another open bottle was placed in it. He drank it down and soon fell ill. He languished for two days, writhing in pain, frothing, and bleeding from his mouth. On the third day, he finally died in a convulsive fit. Y'all, to me, this sounds like poisoning. The most common types of poison used in the rural South then were strychnine and dissolved mothballs, both of which take a lot to kill someone unless that victim has open sores or ulcers in their throat and stomach. The devil had come to collect his due. It's thought that Robert was buried at Mount Zion Cemetery near Morgan City, Mississippi. There have been several markers placed there, but the actual gravesite is lost to time. Side notes. Y'all know the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's a Coen Brothers movie, and it's their take on Homer's Odyssey. Well, remember the black man that they met at the crossroads before going into the radio station, Tommy Johnson? Well, he was based on none other than our Robert Johnson that much of today's story was about. Or it could have been fellow blues singer Tommy Johnson who also claimed to have met the devil at the crossroads. I kind of think it's a mashup of the two, but what do y'all think? Now for our news segment, the oldest buildings in all 50 states. Number three on our list is from Tucson, Arizona. Mission San Xavier de Bach. Father Kino arrived in 1692 and oversaw the laying of its foundations over the next eight years though the building itself wouldn't actually begin until 1783. And its completion was 14 years later in 1797. It's a beautiful old mission with some more stylings on the building, unlike what we normally picture a Spanish mission to look like. And number four on our list is from Arkansas, and you can visit this structure at the historic Arkansas Museum in Little Rock. The building was originally built in 1824 as a shop and a tavern. It's famous to Arkansas history. It hosted the last meeting of the territorial legislation before Arkansas was made a state. 
Are y'all ready for a scary movie recommendation? Y'all, I know I complain all the time about this, so I don't know why I do it. But anyway, it's hard to find ones I can sit through. <laughs> but um, Daybreak from 2019 on Netflix. It's like a zombie apocalypse. But all the zombies are adults and all that's left are kids. So the kids all break off into their different factions, just like what you'd see in the lunchroom. There's a group of jocks, a group of cheerleaders, a group of nerds, you know, so on and so forth. So, I mean, like, I would really compare it more to, like, I guess it's more like a comedy slash teen horror film. It was more funny than scary, but there was a lot of little kids cussing in it. So, again, y'all use the internet movie database page for the parental guide before watching anything with kids but I have to say the show did crack me up and I have one more recommendation for y'all um do y'all follow Susie Edge on TikTok she's a doctor and historian and she gets into all the gross and gory stuff on on what killed historical figures it's pretty interesting if you like the odd and the macabre give her a follow on TikTok like I said, she's a doctor and historian, and she does a really great job with all the gory, gruesome details about historical figures' deaths and things like that. I've been listening. Actually, I just finished it. It was really good. Listening to her new book on Audibles, um, she narrates it herself, and it's called Mortal Monarchs, A Thousand Years of Royal Deaths. There's a lot of dying and dysentery, <laughs> so be prepared for some grossness. But hey, it's all in history fun, right? But yeah, I really enjoyed the book. So y'all check it out. I think we've got at least, what, one more Halloween episode coming y'all's way. And I'm working on another Patreon. Another, um, this will be a Halloween special Patreon episode. So y'all check out our Patreon. Just search for The Lore of the South on Patreon.com. And... Make sure y'all leave us five stars where you can. You can contact us at lorethesouth at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. Also Instagram. I post pics to go along with each and every show. And as another extra little side note here, I have to tell y'all that we just got back from, um, from Beaufort, South Carolina. And I know y'all will be familiar with that because of the Robert Small story. And let me tell y'all, it was such a beautiful, beautiful place. I highly recommend a trip to Beaufort. We stayed, I think I posted pictures for y'all to see. And I may have posted the video of the cute little place we stayed. It was a perfect location. I mean, one evening we went for a walk to go find a place for dinner. Because y'all, Saturday, Sundays and Mondays, the sidewalks were rolled up. So... Especially Sunday, it was hard to find a place open to eat. So, but we went and walked to the location, and as we were walking, I like look over, and there's the man himself. It's the bust of Robert Smalls. And I was like, oh my gosh, did we just find the cemetery he's buried at? I was totally thinking that he was going to be like in some huge cemetery somewhere. No, it's this little, it's this cute church with a tiny little burying ground in between it and another building and his whole family just right there and we just stumbled across it it, it was it was really neat and like i said i recommend 
if you're looking for just like a little quick getaway in the south somewhere, Beaufort is adorable. It has the most antebellum homes left, I believe, in the southeast. I think the only other place is maybe Arkansas. But through the entire Civil War, it was um, occupied by Union forces. So everything was pretty much safe because they were using it as their southern headquarters. Um, but more about that in another episode because I learned a lot while there. So we're going to have probably a couple episodes just about things in Beaufort. But for now, I'll let y'all go and we'll talk to y'all later on Lore of the South.